keep calm and cauliflower cheese. Keep calm and cauliflower cheese. Keep calm and cauliflower. Keep calm and cauliflower cheese. Cauliflower cheese. Ah. Oh yes, hello there. He- 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 hello. It's Chappie, the British butler, and this is the 21st, repeat, the 21st edition of Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, your little invitation into a whimsical portal. Seeing that it's the 21st anniversary of the first episode, I'm wondering if you, the listener, should give me some sort of promise ring or uh, some sort of memento, maybe a gold clock or something. Um, You know, your dear host... The uh, highly worked, highly stressed butler. Come on, you can give me a little trinket or something, can't you? Anyway, welcome along to the show. Um, some of the things that we uh, that we may or may not be talking about uh, in this podcast today. Taylor Swift sings a love story to the Lake District on a new album. Her love of the British, as I always say... I cannot be within maybe 50 yards of Taylor Swift because I feel that she might tackle me. She might um, do ill-judged, slightly inappropriate things to me. Um, She is just addicted and magnetized to the British for some reason. And some of and some of her boyfriends haven't been that uh, that attractive. Let's put it that way. Um, Meat eaters won't go the extra meter when the veggie option is closer. Uh, top forger Max Brandet is a victim of his own success. Sausage heaven, 250 flavors and one to stop your love life flopping. Uh, the Mega Mouse Shark is a jaw dropper for science. Uh, satellites will spy on cows making greenhouse gases. Uh, maybe we're going to delve in and have a little snifter of the best Loire wines in the Loire Valley, potentially, or maybe not. And why are the British and the Americans so much fatter than the French? A little bit on flexible working and how everybody's asking for it now. Bomb-sniffing locusts can slip into tight spots. And uh, the little tiny elephant shrew lost for 50 years has re- been rediscovered in Dabatu in Africa. So I'm still trying to train a slightly naughty corgi puppy. Um, I mean, you sort of need a, a chair with a bit of gun trying to persuade this little beauty to do what daddy says. Um, it's uh, it, it's hard work. Um First night, hardly any sleep, whining all night. And then after that, um, it's got a little bit easier. I just don't know about the whole crate training thing. I'm not a not a huge fan of the crate training. Um, I sort of baby gate it rather than crate train, I think. But anyway, things are getting a little bit easier. And those, I mean, I mean, for God's sake, they have, um, you know, Shark Week, Jaws Week, whatever you want to call it on the Discovery Channel. I think they should have a, a new little corgi puppy week because those those gnashes are like uh, razor blades. 
it's you know I think I'm going to lose a little finger or a pinky or maybe even worse a nip of the crown jewels or something who knows so meat eaters won't go the extra meter when the veggie option is closer obviously we're all moving towards plant-based vegan diets and everything else I think my daughters think that uh, my dog George is uh, on a plant-based diet the amount of grass that the poor devil eats Um, diners are more likely to pick a vegetarian option if it's placed an additional meter in front of the meat and fish dishes in a canteen line, a study has found. Researchers um, experimented with customers at two Cambridge University college canteens to find out uh, whether the position of the vegetarian options influenced meat eaters' choices. Placing a vegetarian lasagna in front of its meaty alternative, did little to get the diners to forgo the beef. When the vegetable option was moved an additional meter, making at least 1.81 meters, six feet, so it's like social distancing for vegetarians, away from the meat dish, sales rose by 40%. In the largest experiment of its kind, researchers collected data on 105,000 meal selections over a two-year period, during which the placement of meat and non-meat dishes was switched weekly, then monthly. The experiments took place across two colleges, one with 600 students, one with 900. The canteen customers were presented with the vegetarian and meat options in uh, differing orders. For weekday lunch and dinners, the customers were unaware of their choices were being recorded, viewed the meals, then asked the staff to serve their preferred options. The researchers had expected to see a difference when the vegetarian option was put in front of the meat dish, but it was only the college that uh, that added the extra meter, making the total gap 1.81, which saw a surge in sales. They tried reducing the gap of the canteen to 67 centimeters, which led to vegetarian sales becoming less popular when they're behind the meat dishes. Now, I know the big thing uh, in the UK, obviously the wonders of the meat pie, um, is the vegetarian sausage roll. Now, um, I haven't tried a vegetarian sausage roll. I wonder how they're going to make the, the, the pastry, which is like a butter-dominated um, uh, item, how they're going to make that pastry taste as buttery and as delicious as um, you know a non-traditional, non-vegan type of uh, uh, sausage roll. Now, the, the fake sausages are, are okay. They're not too bad. I I do have a nasty suspicion that they're over-processed, um, which is defeats the object of the exercise, I think. Um, but I'm willing to give it a go. I'm willing to have a meatless sausage, uh, meatless sausage, and I'm willing to give the pastry without the batter a go. Uh, anybody out there, answers on a postcard and let me know. I'm really not a fussy chap, though, when it comes. As long as there is a pastry glove around the meat or the faux meat, I'm a happy chappy. And I love injecting, love, love, love injecting condiments into the pie. You try it. Try injecting the condiments into the pie. Little dash of mustard, little bit of ketchup, red sauce, maybe a little bit of brown sauce as well if you want that tangy, little bit of HP House of Parliament sauce. I know many of the listeners out there say, uh, Chappie, you're obsessed and addicted to sausage. Well, meat cased sausages encased in like, you know, it's almost like, you know, gold being encased in platinum for me that's the sausage um but sausage heaven 250 flavors and one to stop your love life flopping when it comes to the breadfast matthias freund has no taboos his passion is inventing new varieties and his eye-watering concoctions include a gin and tonic sausage a banger that's said to add sizzle to your love life 
Unlike many food makers, he's happy to share the details of his ingredients. Mr. Freud says that his gin and tonic bratwurst takes a litre of gin and 250 millilitres of tonic for every 10 kilograms of sausage meat. And the trick is to include cucumber to soak up the flavour of the gin. Gin and tonic bratwurst is a complete hit for the customers, said Mr. Freund, as a butcher in the Bavarian town of Sommerkarl, who holds the Guinness World Record of producing the widest variety of sausage flavours. Asked whether it would be safe to drive after eating one, I doubt you'll get drunk on it. No one eats that many sausages. Well, they haven't met Chappie, obviously. Mr. Freund's customers return to his shop time and time again, and he takes uh, online orders for the vacuum-packed products. He created 250 types of flavoured sausage, including 120 kinds of bratwurst or fried sausage. His repertoire includes whiskey, mango, apple, spaghetti, gummy bears, and 1001 Nights, which includes dates. Mr. Freund's aphrodisiac vatwurst shuns any modern medicine for erectile dysfunction. Instead, it includes stinging nettles, which are said to have a, a similar effect. It's very popular, indeed, and delicious with ham and onion. The nettles taste like spinach. For those who like visual stimulation, Mr. Freund's Deutschland bratwurst made with olives, tomatoes, cheese, cuts into the uh, German national colours with his Europa Bratwurst, is like the European flag. The uh, family shop dates to 1873, and Mr. Freund's wife Stephanie, a fifth generation, to run it. Fresh from developing this week's flavours bacon and cheese bratwurst, Mr. Freund's creative brain is racing. There's all kinds of things you could do. I'm thinking of chocolate and all kinds of vegetable drinks. I'll be retired before I run out of ideas. Uh, I'm just thinking if you get stopped by the police, you know, and they think you've you know, had one too many, one too many bratwurst. Um, if, if you get stopped by the police and you've got like a, you know, a gin and tonic bratwurst in the mouth whilst driving. I mean, first of all, how would they breathalyze you with that porker hanging out of your mouth? And then, and then secondly, uh, I mean, would it take you over the limit? How many gin and tonic bratwurst did it take to uh, slide you over the limit? And it looks slightly dubious, like a, you know, piece of, bratwurst hanging out of your mouth whilst you're driving along a fieve in Germany. Anyway, something to ponder. So we're constantly hearing about flatulent cows. Um, there's a new satellite that apparently is going to spy on uh, cows making greenhouse gases. New Zealand's 5 million dairy cows will be the test bed for an international space mission that will use satellites to detect methane emissions. Scientists know methane is rising globally, but not how much of the rise is caused by livestock as opposed to wetlands, rice paddies and other sources. New Zealand has excellent records on how much greenhouse gas is emitted by cows and other ruminants each year. So it's ideal for the testing accuracy of the satellite's measurements. So, you know, I was thinking about this. You, you Obviously, you hear about this a lot, the flatulent cows and causing all these greenhouse gases. I mean, I think, I think we need to test, honestly, one of the biggest fart production vessels in the world is a prop forward in the rugby scrum. I saw many, many, uh, you know, atomic bomb farts going off whilst bending down in a rugby scrum. Um, I saw scrotums being pulled and farts emanating. I mean, I think you need to test. I don't know where you need to stick up the jacksy, but you need to test rugby players for farting missions. I think it's far worse than our, our uh, bovine friends.
So we're having a few of our usual features coming up a little bit later in the podcast. We have uh, some scallywag darts. Uh, we uh, also have some uh, uh, medieval tincture tinder where the axe swings right or left. And uh, to decide if they're getting the love potion or if uh, they're getting the axe, basically, or something along those lines. So that's coming up uh, later in the program. So why are we so much fatter than the French, the Americans and the British? Their food's better, but their telly is awful, uh, says Anthony Peregrine, an Englishman abroad. If you just come back from the summer holiday in France, you'll have three things in mind. Quarantine stretching out before you. First, the British government wrecking your holiday by threatening implementing imprisonment. Second, the uh, French obsess about food. And third, despite this, they're not as nearly as fat as the British or the Americans. Nowhere near. Of course, uh, there's a few tankers. Uh, Honor de Balzac uh, probably never saw his feet beyond the age of 30. Uh, but most aren't. This has recently become abundantly clear as both nations headed to the beaches. So photos on Bournemouth Beach were striking less for crowds more of their weight. The sands covered in human inflatables. For such many people, social distancing seems a simple matter of turning sideways. The French obviously have their physical faults. They've grown recently. They remain shorter than the British norm. Uh, and uh, retain doubts about their dentistry, obviously the British as well. But put the French on the beach and they're generally taut. They're much lessly to flop over, hang inland. They don't slouch. They're brisk in big cities and in the countryside, jog or herd animals. This is why Britain's 33rd in the world's uh, obesity league. France trots in at 87th. Um, I'm mentioning this because the, you know, the average body mass index um, is 23, isn't going to beat Ethiopians over 26 miles, uh, but they can still get out of the hotel without a crane or any sort of vessel to uh, to uh, lift them down here. Um, but, you know, it's the product of, you know, us Brits being brought up on the sort of Lancashire meat pies upbringing um, and versus 30 years of eating salad nissoise culture in France replacing pastry of olives, indulgence, dark beer with light beer, and rosé over pastis. Um, while the seaside experience emphasizes Anglo-French physical differences, it also furnishes one explanation. Simple, it's the fish and chips, which add to your lifestyle, that big beer batter mixed up versus the French seafood platter of oysters, mussels, whelk, sea urchins, and razor clams. Uh, followed by grilled John Dory. So not so much, not being cooked in so much fat and lard. You know, this is, uh, and then, you know, there's other reasons as well. The UK has excellent television, terrific football, Admiral pubs, all first-rate excuses to lounge and put on the spare tyre around the waist, whereas a French TV is bloody awful, apparently. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of some of the key why the French are a little bit more svelte. Uh, than us, the uh, the British, I would say. Anyway, that's uh, something to definitely uh, ponder uh, over a glass of uh, Von Rouge, I think. So I saw a very interesting, uh, I know photovisuals are fantastic on an audio podcast, but in the, in the week I saw a, a picture of a, uh, somebody cooking a traditional English roast meal. You know, you had your Yorkshire pudding, which is an absolute fluffy delight, uh, vegetables, roast potatoes, mashed potatoes. But then on top was an incredibly rare piece of uh, beef. It was almost blue. And, um, you know, the, the writer said uh, 
this looks pretty perfect to us. Um, and some of the responses in Twitter are very, very funny. So the, one of the uh, responses was, that's how we serve quality beef. Just knock the horns off and chase it for a hot kitchen. Um, and if ever a word was ill-suited this particular setting, it was roast. Because it, honestly, it, it's so pink and red, I, I, can't, even, uh, I can't even describe it. Uh, was going to say that it was cooked when the chef stepped outside and struck a match to light a smoke, but yours is definitely better. And, um, and then I think my favourite of all, it looks like somebody surgically removed a menstruating a vagina. So it's something that you don't see very, very often in America that is uh, one of my absolutely favourite fruits is the black currant. And because of the hot summer uh, across the UK and Europe, um, the black currant juice is so loose across the house. So warmer summers caused by climate change are producing juicier black currants to the light of fruit farmers. One of the country's biggest growers uh, said that the heat has sent the natural sugar levels in the fruit soaring. Anthony Snell, whose company supplies Ribena and all organic black currants to Marks and Spencers, says with all the climate change, we seem to be getting nicer summers if you hit like crops like black currant where you need coolish winters. And wet winters are fine because they provide moisture for the summer. And then a warm summer, the natural sugar levels have become very, very high, which is excellent for the quality of juice produced. Mr. Snell has 450 acres in Herefordshire and is a former president of the International Black Current Association. In the average British summer, 8,000 between 8,000 and 12,000 tons of black currants are picked. Ribena uses 90% of the crop. A new breed of the fruit was grown this year in Norfolk to cope with winters that are getting warmer. Bushes need 12,000 hours of winter chill below 7 degrees Celsius to bear fruit the following summer. And the new variety Ben Laura's uh, fruited for the first time this year has been developed for a partnership between James Hutton, Dundee and LucasAid Ribena, the drinks giant. Um, Harriet Prosser, a uh, black current uh, aerogamist at the company, said this year's harvest sees farmers reaping the rewards as 20 years of research comes to fruition. Harvest is always the most exciting time of the year, but always promises to be doubly rewarding. This year's weather has demonstrated why we need to be in the front line in adapting uh, to changing climates. Black currants have been bred at the James Hutton Institute since 1956 and account for half the black currants grown in the world. Hutton varieties all named after Scottish mountains and Ben Laws is a peak in Perthshire. So I, you can't get black currants. I think that they brought some sort of leaf disease across to America and they stopped growing it in America. It's a very tart um, type, of, uh, type of fruit um, little smaller than the blackberry, but much more tarter than the blackberry and blueberries. And some of the things you can do, are some of the recipes, salmon and gin make the ideal accompaniments with black currant for a wonderful cocktail. You put the gin, cream de cassis, and the black currant syrup in a cocktail shaker full of ice. Shake and double strain into a, into a glass and serve with a few frozen black currants in the glass. Absolutely phenomenal. So we have a little bit of a rediscovery. A tiny elephant shrew lost for 50 years has been rediscovered in Debutu in Africa. 
A mammal thought to be extinct for more than half a century has been rediscovered in the Horn of Africa. The Somali elephant shrew that has a little trunk has been lost to science since 1968. But researchers have released pictures and videos taken to Botu last year of the insect-eating and apparently peanut butter-loving animal. It's about the size of a mouse and its tiny legs can power it up to speeds of about 20 miles an hour. The uh, multinational research team has been on the hunt for the animals known as Somali Sengis in Dabutu last year when the surprise finds were made. The team has used more than 1,250 traps with peanut butter and oatmeal and yeast um, where locals have identified Sengis from photographs. I mean, you could catch like Americans with peanut butter and jelly as well, I suppose. Um, but th th honestly, they're so cute, little trunk, little little nose there it made me think you could bring back an aging harrison ford he's found the lost ark he's found the holy grail um but he hasn't found the little elephant shrew you could call it crusade for the lost elephant shrew ford captures elephant shrew poachers um, and you could like rescue the glorious elephant shrew and hold him aloft as he did with the holy grail in the ark i think it'd be rather fantastic so germany walkies law ensures dogs get exercise apparently germans have put a new law into place uh really enforcing dogs getting exercise they're not left getting home like chewing on a string of sausages every day um which is quite interesting because i mean i think it's good for every dog to get a little bit of jaunt and jolly outside here but i almost i, I sort of imagine sort of lederhausen clad brass and frau on a sled with a string of sausages making sure the hound get it getting its exercise being pulled along maybe snacking on a little bit of sauerkraut there we have some very, very sad news, ladies and mantelpieces. Treetop lover with suicidal sex drive is wiped out by the Australian bushfires. A lusty marsupial that has so much sex, the males of the species die of exhaustion, may have been wiped out in the summer bushfires. Searchers in the lush mountain top rainforest in the southeast of Queensland have failed to find any of the endangered black-tailed dusky, um, uh, little, again, little rodents here. Um, the males have sex with as many females as they can during an annual two to three week mating session with sessions lasting up to 14 hours with deadly consequences. It sort of makes me think it's almost like a, you know, a treehouse secluded Charlie Sheen, the Charlie Sheen of the rodent world, but not, you know, not so much drug induced with fermented berries. I'm sure you, you know, came across in the week the news of Ed Sheeran. Uh, the last copy of the Ed Sheeran um, CD that he made with 13 is uh, is actually going up for auction next month. And he doesn't want it released. He's very embarrassed about his uh, work as a 13-year-old. I'm just wondering if my rendition of I've Got a Brand New Combine Harvester played in the hot teaspoons when I was 13 doesn't come out. I mean, I, I can remember like indulging hot buttery crumpets between takes, but I'd be desperately embarrassed if that ever was released to the masses. Yes, here we go, a little bit of scallywag darts. We take some of the most heinous, heinous crimes uh, known to man and we, uh, and we dissect them over the course of the week and equate them to dart scores. So we've got a missing the board, we've got triple 20, the bullseye and Chappie's special prize. 
Um, so I think missing the board this week, though, sad for the monkeys, though. Monkeys go on strike after being paid unfairly for some work in the scientific study. I mean, to be honest, they've been paid poorly for years, lugging a piano upstairs for just a cup of tea, no health care to cover, flee a tick treatment. And I would actually, if I was in the same situation, I'd throw poo at my bosses. So I think we should give credence and, and probably maybe give them a triple 20. There's another Elvis Alive conspiracy exploding with the photo of the king after his death. Uh, and actually... Uh, you know, digital copy, time-stamped after his death, apparently. Um, so who knows about that? Um, and I think we have uh, let's uh, let's think. We have our bullseye of the week here. We've got a uh, a gardener sets new speed record making homemade wheelbarrow. So I mean, this is the guy who's doing wheelbarrow racing, basically. But I think this year. Uh, in Alpine Vale this winter, I'm going to introduce uh, Alpine Wheel Barrow Sports. Uh, wheelbarrow bobsleighing, husky pulled, being pulled by a wheelbarrow, uh, wheelbarrow skating, and I'm even going to go off the ski jump in a wheelbarrow. And we have, ladies and gentlemen, Chappie's special prize. Are we ready for it? Are we ready for it? sirs and madams this is the glorious one absolutely glorious swiss town dusted in chocolate from lint factory mishap switzerland is known for many things including its chocolate but one town got an extra dose of its sweet sweet signature treat on friday following a malfunction at the Lint Chocolate Factory, ladies and gentlemen. A the factory in the Swiss town of Alton experienced a minor problem with its cooling ventilation, which ended up sending cocoa powder spewing into the air. The company Lint and Spruel said in a statement to CBS News, strong winds that morning helped spread the chocolate dust through the town. The statement continued. A photo posted on Twitter showing a car in Alton dusted with cocoa powder. The lady never dusted in cocoa powder and chocolate has gone viral with chocolate snow. The company said the chocolate particles are completely harmless to humans and the environment. I'd be licking all that goodness up. I would be licking all that goodness up. It's manna, honey from heaven, chocolate from heaven, the chocolate ascension. Christ coming back as cocoa, ladies and gentlemen. I mean... It's a little bit different to the uh, chocolate dusting the seal repairman got when the manhole cover exploded and caused a brown tsunami when I was at university. So yes, we move straight on, straight on with much haste to our um, tincture tender where the axe swings right or swings left to our medieval uh, or historical victim of the week. And this week we have the death of Edward II Natural causes suffocation or red-hot poker up his ass. Uh, the death of uh, King Edward II during his imprisonment at Berkeley Castle in 1327 is shrouded in mystery. Nobody knows for certain whether he died of natural causes, was murdered and ordered his wife, in fact swapped his clothes with a servant and escaped. It's an understatement uh, to say that Edward II had a pretty rough time as King of England. Unsuccessful military campaigns, uprising civil wars... 
and his controversial relationship with the unpopular peers Gavastam and later the hatred dispenser family. He fell out of favour with his own wife, uh, Isabella, and in 1326, Queen Isabella turned against Edward and gathered an army and kicked him off the throne. As a result, Edward II became the first English monarch to be disposed, or deposed, or indisposed of, actually, uh, depending on what you believe. It's possible he suffered a very gruesome death by having a red-hot poker shoved up his bottom on Isabella's orders. It sounds like a woman you would not want to mess with, a certain femme fatale. So, anyway, it's, it's, it's a real contentious element uh, within, uh, within English history. The, uh, the whole uh, situation of whether or not uh, Edward II died, uh, you know, a, a sort of fate worse than death, and uh, actually had a uh, red-hot poker shoved up his bottom, and that's how he died. Um, but anyway, so our decision, as always, uh, as always on Tincture Tinder, uh, normally with an axe sw- uh, swinging right or left, a medieval, a medieval version uh, of uh, of Tinder is to uh, is to you know make the determination here of um, you know whether or not um, you know Edward did he did he get the love potion. Or, um, or you know, or did he have a uh, you know a face wor- worse than death? Was it something along these lines? I mean, there's certainly that certainly that going on here. Uh, we maybe this. Um, oh, it might be this. Oh, it's a, it was like more of that I think in this case here. So I don't think it was this. I think it was probably more of uh, more of a little bit of that going on, a little bit of a uh, you know we, we haven't got a squealing pig sadly, you know, which is which would be rather lovely if we did have that. So a little bit of this going on, a little bit of medieval fighting, and then I think it was this, uh, and that was a poker going up there, and uh, maybe a little bit of that right at the end there. So once again, thank you very much for uh, indulging yourself on the twenty first edition of keep calm and cauliflower cheese um i mean i think i need to fly out to the swiss town and uh, start licking cars to get a taste of that wonderful unctuous chocolate um but as always we uh, finish the podcast today follow me on keep cheese uh subscribe and like on all of the platforms uh, i'm on uh, itunes and uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, all of them. But a little poem to end with, Late August by Margaret Atwood. This is the plum season, the nights blue and distended, the moon hazed. This is a season of peaches, with their lush, low bulbs that glow in the dusk, apples that drop and rot, sweetly their brown skins veined as glands. No more the shrill voices that cried, need, need, from the cold pond, bladed and urgent as new grass. Now it is the crickets that say ripe, ripe, slurred in the darkness while the plums dripping on the lawn outside our window burst with a sound of thick syrup muffled and slow. The air is still warm, flesh moves over flesh. There is no hurry. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Thank you very much again. I doff my hat to you. Cheerio and see you again next week, ladies and gentlemen.